Genesis chapter 26. That's where we're at today. Last time I preached, we completed our exposition of Genesis chapter 25. We talked about Jacob and Esau. Uh, We delved back into Romans chapter 9. We said this is going to play out, of course, in the New Testament in, in God showing his sovereignty to us. We talked even about some Malachi. So today we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 26, and we're really only going to do about the first 12 verses or so. So first let's pray, and then we'll review what we covered last time. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us today great things from your word. We pray you'd use me as a mouthpiece to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let this exegesis today be accurate to your word and to your spirit. May all that is said and done today bring honor and glory to you and you alone, for you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. So last time I finished up Genesis 25 and we covered verses 21 to 34. And that section starts out, remember, with the barrenness of Rebekah. And remember we said just like his father Abraham's uh, His father Abraham's wife, so Sarah, just like Sarah, was barren for so long before Isaac's birth. In similar manner, Isaac finds out that his wife's barren as well. Which is quite ironic, given the promise that God has literally, audibly, personally spoken to them. I mean, if God shows up and speaks to you face to face and says... Here's what's going to happen. Most likely, I mean, I think I would be this way. I would think that's going to happen tomorrow. Like, I just saw God. And yet we find out that God's ways and his timing are not ours. Yeah, every person that's walked with the Lord very long can say, yeah, amen. (laughs) Found that out too, haven't you? So just like his mother Sarah was barren and unable to produce a child early on, so now we find Isaac's wife Rebecca being the same way. And that must have seemed strange. It's quite possible that Isaac expected his wife to become pregnant soon after they got married and start producing these offspring. Because remember, Abraham's been promised that. Isaac is the promised son. Obviously, he's heard that growing up. It also is possible that Isaac got a little spoiled growing up. You ever seen that? Witnessing it right now with my kids? It's possible. And it's possible that the Lord was building character in Isaac and needed to through a trial. And we're going to talk a lot today about trials and what God does in them. Because that's really what we're seeing in these these two sections. It simply wasn't the case... Uh, if Isaac expected a, a, a quick pregnancy and lots of offspring and lots of heirs, that simply wasn't to be the case. Instead, the new couple goes 20 years trying to have children only to come up empty. 20 years. 20 years of trying to build a family, ending up in empty frustration. And Isaac here faces very much the same decision as Abraham once did. And actually, I should say as Abraham and Sarah once did, right? It was Sarah's plan, and Abraham decides that's a great idea. So basically, his, his, what he's facing is, do I leave this in the, in the hands of the Lord, or do I take matters into my own hands? Do I take matters into my own hands and find a different woman to bear children through for me, 
to bear an heir through. Do I, in other words, do I repeat the folly of my father or not? And to their credit, we find that they've learned from Father Abraham's example how not to handle the situation, right? He cries out to the Lord on behalf of his wife, and the Lord hears and answers his prayer. So we see this, is, we might say this is a spiritual victory, right? We see this spiritual victory. And guess what we're going to see right on the heels of it? Spiritual failure. I have, I have uh, good news and bad news for you. The good news is it's he that's at work in you, both to will and do to his good pleasure. He's working through you, which means you will have spiritual victories. Praise the Lord. Not because of your own strength, you have none, but because of the strength of Christ in you. Now, here's the bad part. When you got born again, you got a new nature. You got the spirit of Christ in you, but your old nature did not go away. And it won't until you die. Glorification is not going to happen until later. And that means you'll also have spiritual failures. If you're a believer, you're not trying to fail. But it's still going to happen because you have a sin nature. And I I want to qualify what I'm saying carefully because I don't want you to get the idea that it's all right to live an antinomian or an onomian without law lifestyle. It's not. Right. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And so my expectation is, if you're a believer, you're obviously attempting to keep the commands of the Lord. Okay. But even in that, in your best efforts, you will still have failures. You will still have times of, if you will, faithlessness where you have failed the Lord and you may have failed him dramatically. And yet what you're going to see in this passage is God is faithful, period. God is faithful. It's obvious the Lord is testing Isaac and Rebecca, and I would say at least in this area, they had passed that test. Praise the Lord. The scripture does not record them ever wavering in their faith. And unlike Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca don't do the foolhardy thinking of taking this problem into their own hands and finding some other lady to work this. They don't do that. And by the way, speaking of God testing us, I am going to get into this. I had a student ask me this week if I thought God would ever send anything, quote, bad into someone's life. What a loaded question, right? Oh man, what a loaded question. It is loaded, but it is an important question that probably everyone grapples with at some point, certainly every believer. And so I want to answer that today. I want to actually take time to answer that because that's what's going on in this passage as well. Now, this particular girl's going through some really rough stuff, tough stuff at home right now, mostly revolving around, you know, at least one parent that's not faithful. So what she's really asking is something like, why would God let this happen? Why would God let this happen to me? Which is a loaded question because it assumes you're entitled to something different, right? Good things should be happening to me. Well, you're not entitled of course, one hand, on one hand, the answer to the question is really the direct cause of this is sin. 
What's the direct cause of this? It's sin. That's what's causing the hard time, the hurt, the brokenness. The tough situation at home is really an outworking of people engaging in sin and disobeying God's word. Engaging in things that God has expressly forbidden. The truth of the matter is that if we humans would obey God's word more, less of this kind of brokenness and heartache would be so rampant. Period. But on the other hand, when people ask whether God will send something bad into their life... Sometimes they're asking a little bit different question, a little bit different nuance. And it really revolves around the way we've phrased out or we couch the term bad. Because a lot of times when we say something is bad, what we really mean is I don't like it. Therefore, it's bad. As if somehow I am the perfect judge of all circumstantial morality. We define the word bad in a very self-centered and arbitrary way. We define it to mean we don't like that. The food that we don't like is bad. The weather we don't like is bad. The car we don't like is bad. The circumstances we don't like are bad, etc., etc. And conversely, we, we are very guilty of often doing the same thing with good. If we like it, if we find it favorable to our own comfort, our own purposes, our own agenda, we'll say, well, it's good. That may not be the case. It might be something that's very disobedient to God, and yet we have a tendency to label it as good because we see it as desirable to our fleshly appetites or our own comfort or our own agenda. That doesn't mean it's good. Sometimes we call things bad that aren't bad. The, the things that we say are bad, would God allow this bad circumstance into our life? And bad at all just a circumstance we don't like. We don't particularly enjoy it, and so we label it as bad when the truth of the matter is it's not. If you would like a great illustration of that, I I can invite you to ask any of my children whether they think my discipline is good. No child likes to be disciplined. It's bad. Right? Well, maybe it's really good. Maybe it's something that God calls necessary and right listen to what isaiah 45 7 says i'm the lord and there is no other i form the light and create the darkness i make peace and create calamity i the lord do all these things we don't like grappling with that the the devil didn't decide on the tornado and that's sometimes we're guilty of saying that kind of having that kind of childish theology. Like if there's something in my life I don't like, that's from the devil. But if there's something good, something I do like, obviously it's from God. Listen, you can like things very much that are temptations. And you can dislike things very much that are discipline or that are actually good for you. That the Lord has put into your life for your good. Isaiah 45 is really a place where God is saying he makes peace and causes calamity. Really what he's saying is I'm sovereign. It's me. I'm the one that has the power to do all of this. I'm the one that decrees the end from the beginning. And that can mean sending us through circumstances that we don't like. That can mean sending us through circumstances that we don't find pleasurable. They're bad, but they're not bad. 
Sometimes God might send us through circumstances we don't like because he's testing the genuineness of our faith. Why would God do that? Listen, it's not so he can know. He knows. You know what it's for? (laughs) So you can know. It's really easy for us to get a little higher view of ourselves than we ought. It's really easy for us to think of ourselves as being more mature than we really are. And tests and trials have a way of bringing that out. Do you do that? I mean, I think of myself as a very calm and even-keeled and level-headed guy. Get me tired, frustrated, put me through a trial, and then see if I'm the same way. You know what I find out? I find out I still get snappy. I still get short. Right? I still jump to conclusions at times. I end up finding out maybe I'm not as mature as I thought I was. Maybe I've got more work in that area than I realized I had. Would God do that? Listen to what First Peter says. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, might be found to the praise, honor, and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why were you in this trial? So that the genuineness of your faith might be found. Do you really believe the things that you say you believe? Do we believe those convictions enough to live them out? I mean, anybody can say they believe something when there's, there's no consequence to it, right? But do you really believe it enough that when the time gets tough, you'll stand by it even though it's going to cost you? Well, people are going to be mad at me. Right? Guys at work aren't going to think the same of me. I'm going to be ostracized. Or... As in the case of some of our brothers we were talking about this morning, maybe you're put in jail for it. We have a friend that was preaching in Scotland. He was open-air preaching. He was calling people to repentance. He was saying, the Lord can save you from alcoholism. The Lord can save you from drug addiction. The Lord can save you from homosexuality. The Lord can save you. He goes on and on. When he said homosexuality, the police came, sat him down. You're going to go to jail. You're out here preaching that homosexuality is a sin? We'll throw you in jail. You really believe it? You really believe the message? Well, you'll find out in the trial. So let's bring this back full circle. When we ask the question of whether God will send bad things in our life, if you are labeling trials and trying circumstances as bad, then yes, God will definitely send those into your life. And he will definitely send you through trials. Why? Because he will use those trials. It may not seem like it, but he will use those trials for your good and for his glory. Sometimes he puts you through trials so that you have an open door for the gospel. Man, why am I in this bad situation? Because you have the ability through this bad situation to give someone the only message that can save their soul. And instead, we're so consumed with how how it's happening to me and our uncomfort, our our uncomfortability, we forget about that. Because we've got a a part of us that's very self-centered. No, God will use those trials to mature you, to grow you, to reach others with the gospel, and to grow your character into more Christ-like shape. Think of Joseph, right? 
That seems to be what's happened here with Isaac and Rebecca. They come through the trial of childlessness in fine fashion. We could learn from their example in that. The Lord hears Isaac's prayer. Rebecca gets pregnant. But then Rebecca realizes there's a struggle in her womb. She goes and inquires of the Lord, why is this happening? To which he responds, the struggle is because these two boys in her womb will eventually become two nations that will struggle against each other. And eventually she gives birth to these two boys, Esau and Jacob. The boys grow up. Esau becomes a skillful hunter. Jacob helps mom around the tents. And because of that, Isaac favors Esau because Esau is bringing in tasty game. Like, you know, that's anyway. And Rebecca favors Jacob, probably because he's helping her with the chores. And that fleshly favoritism, by the way, and the political wrangling that would ensue because of it would cause a massive rift in this family. It would bring some real brokenness and dysfunction into their relationships. The words of Dylan Darnell, their flesh is wrecking stuff. It's like my favorite line of all the songs he's ever made. Need the strength of the Lord to come and fill me up. It's true. Their flesh was wrecking stuff. The boys end up growing into their names. Esau or Edom, whose name literally means red, would trade away his birthright for a bowl of red stew, soup. Didn't even have meat in it. A bowl of basically lentils, red beans, and some bread. Meanwhile, Jacob, whose name means supplanter or deceiver, would scheme his way into that same birthright. And that's where chapter 25 closes. So now let's turn to Genesis chapter 26. Let's continue our study. We'll start at verse 1, and we're going to actually come down through verse 12. Typically, this passage is broken up in the first 11 verses, and then 12 starts another section. But I want to show you something today. 12 is the key. It's the key verse to the point that's being driven home 1 through 11. There's a point being driven home. It was the same point that was driven home to Abraham twice. And it's going to be driven home to Isaac today. And I'm going to try to drive that home into your hearts today as well. Genesis 26 follows the life of Isaac. It's kind of a backing up and a fleshing out of his life. Because Genesis 25 is starting to kind of get into Esau and Jacob, right? And 26 is almost like saying, oh, wait, by the way, I've got to tell you some things about Isaac's life too. Got to know something about him. So that's where 26 starts off. And in a way, as you read through this, you might find this story strangely familiar. If you've been reading through the book of Genesis, when you start reading this story, you're going to think, haven't I read this before? Haven't I seen this somewhere? And in a way you have. In fact, you've already read it. If you've been reading through Genesis with us, you've already read over this basically twice. This is the third time. Once you saw it in chapter 12 with Abraham in Egypt. Once you saw it in chapter 20 with Abraham in, with the Philistines uh, um, and Abimelech. Now we're going to see the same thing in the life of Abraham's promised son. So let's get into it. Verse 1, there was a famine in the land. Man, there's a sermon in that little piece. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Where was he living at this time? In the promised land? There was a famine in the promised land? When God told him, I want you to stay here, and there was still a famine. Land of milk and honey, right? 
And by the way, nowhere does the scripture record that this famine was on account of Isaac's sin. Don't get me wrong. Scripture does record famines that happened because that God sent because of his people's unfaithfulness. And I'm not trying to discount that. Uh, the, the book of Joel, for example, records one of them, right? But this doesn't seem to be one of those. Instead, we are seeing God's promised child living in God's promised land as God told him to do. And yet he's still going through a trial. He's still going through a famine. Why would God do that? Well, the short answer. For his glory and for his people's good. For the glory of his name and for the good of his people. So to escape the famine, Isaac looks like he's following in his father's footsteps, which makes sense. He's going south. He's heading south because he's headed to Egypt. Egypt is essentially the breadbasket of this part of the world, right? Why would you go to Egypt if there's a famine? Well, the famine's probably caused by no rain. But even during times of famine, Egypt still had water for their crops. They had this uh, large river. That went right through the country. What's it called? The Nile. Not denial. You're in denial. I know. I'm trying to catch the fish. Yeah, you're in the Nile. Yes, the Nile River flows through here. And they can make channels, irrigation channels, that waters their land. So even when everybody else is in famine, a lot of times Egypt still had food. And Abraham did that in his day. And that was just kind of well known in that whole area, right? So he says, I'm going to go in his mind. He's thinking, I'm going to go down to Egypt and I'm going to get grain, right? The land of Canaan was entirely dependent on rain. I grew up on a farm in western Kansas. You're very dependent on rain in western Kansas. We do have a large aquifer that runs under, but uh, sometimes it's deep enough. It's tough to get to and pump out of and all that good stuff. I can still remember when I was a kid, we had one year where I helped my grandparents uh, we we planted this large field uh, with seed wheat. We put wheat in the field, and we got so little rain it didn't even germinate. It didn't even sprout up. I'm going to tell you something. When you live on a farm, and you've forwarded, fronted, you know, thirty or $40,000 for seed and fertilizer and diesel and such, and it doesn't even sprout, we call that a trial. Couple of those in a row, you no longer own your farm. You understand what I'm saying here? Serious. And it was the same thing in Canaan. There's not a plan B. We need the rain. And that was part of God's plan. You're dependent upon me. So Isaac heads south. He gets as far as Gerar, where Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, lives. At first glance, you might be tempted to think, man, this guy's really old. Right, Because we just saw him talking to Abraham in chapter 20, which was at least 60 years prior. But actually, it's not. It's not that he's really old. Abimelech is not his name. It's his title. Okay, His name was not Abimelech. His title was. It's like Pharaoh, right? When Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh, he wasn't speaking to a guy whose name was Pharaoh. He was speaking to a guy whose title was Pharaoh. Make sense? Abimelech is the same thing for the Philistines. Abimelech is the king. So I've had, the reason this comes up, I've had um, uh, skeptics one time said, well, see, the Bible's wrong because in this one place it talks about Abimelech and in this other place, this parallel passage, it says it was Achish that was the king. Yes, it was Achish that was the king. 
Abimelech was his title. It wasn't two different people. Does that make sense? And that's what's going on here. But it seems like this Abimelech, I'm assuming this is a different king. I'm assuming this is probably the son of who was the king when Abraham was there. By the way, the, the word Abimelech means my father is the king. So it's very easy to see this was passed down pretty much in the lineage, right? Family line. But it seems like he doesn't know anything about Abraham, right? What a story you would have. Hey, Dad, I had this guy, he came in, he said this, his wife was his sister, he deceived everybody's crazy. You're kidding. I had something just like that. What was his name? Isaac's dad was Abraham. <laughs> Funny story. <coughs> this wasn't, this, it, it's, I suppose it's possible this could be the same guy. I, I doubt it. So, let's go on. Verse 2, when the Lord appeared to him, to Isaac, and said, don't go down to Egypt... Live in the land of which I'll tell you. How would you like that? Hey, there's famine. There's scarcity in this land. Stay here. Say say what? Stay here. Lord, we're going to run out of food. Stay here. I'll provide for you. Stay here. That's what he says. You dwell in this land. Some, uh, Some translations say sojourn. I love that word. Because it basically means you're living here, but you're not really a part of it. You're not really one of the folks. You're different. You're kind of an alien. And that's how we should be in our faith walk, isn't it? We live in the culture, but we're not of the culture. Does that make sense? Dwell in this land, and I'll be with you, and I'll bless you. And to you and your descendants, I'll give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. Okay, time out. For his descendants to multiply as the stars of the heaven, he's got to be alive. Okay, just getting it across. And I'll give to your descendants all of these lands, and in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. So the Lord has appeared to Isaac and essentially told him not to run away from the famine. Hey, don't try to get out of this. Lord, this is a trial. This is a very trying time. This is tough. Yeah, but I don't want you to leave it. I want you just to sit tight and watch me work. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to prosper you. Don't fear. I'm not going to leave you nor forsake you. So fear not. This passage is incredibly similar to what God did with Abraham back in chapter 12. In fact, in places, it's actually a parallel passage. And yet the response from both men is eerily similar. Fear and faithlessness. And yet God is showing us something incredibly important through these failures. He's revealing something mind-blowing through these parallel passages. I'm going to try not to get ahead of myself, though. All right, verse 7. The men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she's my sister, for he was afraid to say she's my wife because he thought the men of this place will kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. Now, obviously, this must have been something that happened semi-regularly. Abraham was afraid it was going to happen with him. Um, Isaac was afraid it was going to happen with him. And when the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, he literally lists it. Right? You're not to covet. You're not to covet your neighbor's wife 
or house or his things. He lists it out. So I'm not saying that he has no reason. I'm just saying he's letting his reason overrun his faith. I've got to qualify that. I'm not saying you should not have any reason. We should be rational beings, no doubt. God is reasonable. He's the ultimate logician. However, we also have the tendency to say, I have put the math together, X, Y, Z, and it will give me A. And therefore, God, I don't think I can follow your plan. I can't obey you, God, because it doesn't work the math out. And God is saying, just trust me. I mean, when the Hebrew boys were told, bow down or go into the fire, they didn't have anybody to tell them, hey, it'll be okay, guys. God's going to save you. All they had was a promise from the Lord. Hey, he's not going to leave us or forsake us. We're his people. He's promised to watch over us. We're going to stand for him. They threw him in the fire and they didn't burn and their clothes didn't smell like smoke. They ran the math and found out uh, God can do better math than you. His plan includes pieces that he hasn't told you because he wants you to trust him. Will you trust him when you don't know all the details? That's what's going on right now. They'll kill me for Rebekah because she's beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass when he'd been there a long time that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Some versions like the ESV will say here that they were laughing together. Love that. The reason the ESV translates it this way is because the literal word used there is laughing. Uh, But sometimes laughing doesn't just mean laughing. All right, I'm going to have to explain this, right? If you ask me, uh, hey, how was that? Uh, how was that project you guys did the other day? Oh, it's cool. Oh, wow! Did you have to wear a coat? Do you think that's what I'm saying to you? How was the concert? It was cool. Oh man! So everybody had to wear coats. It was cold. No, I'm using the word "cool" to mean something else. Okay. Remember before I've talked about euphemisms in Scripture. Remember that? I said when. Uh, When Abraham says to his servant, place your hand under my thigh, that's a euphemism, right? When it says that Leah had weak eyes, it's not saying she needed reading glasses, right? She wasn't very pretty, right? A euphemism is a way to take something that might be kind of shocking to the sensibilities of the other, of the rest of the audience and kind of soften it up a little bit, right? And Jesus was misunderstood because he used uh, euphemisms at times, right? Tells the disciples, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go down and wake him up. And they're like, hey, if he's asleep, he's going to get better. Right? And Jesus is like, no, I'm, he's not asleep. He's dead. Okay? We gotta, I'm going to raise him. Come on, come on, guys. Get on page here, right? The same thing's happening in this passage. They were not laughing. Okay, Abimelech didn't look out the window and was like, man, them two are cutting jokes. They must be married. It didn't happen. In the, by the way, in the Hebrew, it's actually a play on words. Does anybody remember what does Isaac's name mean? Laughter. If you're reading this in the Hebrew, it's basically like um, Abimelech looks through the window and he saw Isaac Isaacing. What? What exactly does that mean? <clears throat> what it means is he was showing some physical affection that brothers and sisters don't show. What is that? Well, I don't know. I mean, he could have been kissing her. Pattern on the behind? I don't know. But it wasn't one of those things like, oh, they're just brother and sister. No, obviously you're not. So he calls them in, right? 
I like the way, by the way, the King James and the Geneva Bible put this. They say, it says that um, Abimelech looked out the window and saw that Isaac was sporting with his wife, Rebecca. I don't know why I like I told my wife last night, I said, from now on, every time I flirt with you, I'll be sporting with you. <laughs> She's my poor wife. What she puts up with, man. Somehow she's still putting up with me. <clears throat> whatever happened, whatever he saw, at that point the gig's up, right? The king looks through the window and goes, obviously you're not just brother and sister, okay? Obviously she's your wife. So he calls him in. Abimelech says to Isaac, this is verse 9, quite obviously she's your wife. How could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I, I said, lest I die on account of her. I, in other words, I, I thought one of you guys in this land would kill me for her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife. <clears throat> so in a grand twist of irony, we find the king of the Philistines rebuking Isaac for his lack of character. And here's what's so amazing about that. Isaac has just blown it. I don't think Isaac sat around and thought to himself, I want to disobey God. I don't think most Christians sit around and think that way, right? Instead, what happens is they get into a trying circumstance and they get afraid. The fear of man is a snare. That's what the scripture says. And that's what happens. They get afraid of man and they, instead of obeying God, they go along with the scheme or the crowd. And that's kind of what happens here. Isaac has just blown it. He's been publicly rebuked by a pagan king for his lack of integrity. But now look at what the next verse says. It's the key. Then Isaac sowed in that land. It's a famine. Let me tell you something. It's scary to sow during a famine. You know why? Because you've got this amount of seed wheat. And that's what you make bread out of. And you either are going to decide to trust God and go scatter this on the ground and hope against hope you're going to get something during a famine. Or you're going to run out of food. Or you'll decide we, we've just got to use what we've got. Grind it up, make it bread. We'll make it last as long as we can go. Isaac finally gets it. God is my provision. Let's just sow it. And look what happens. He's just blown it. And yet, Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. Do you know anything about wheat? A hundred, I, I would love to have a hundredfold in our wheat fields today. I would love that every berry I put in the ground... Produced a stock with a hundred berries on it. I, we don't have that. Okay? It does not happen. And we've got a lot of really good wheat. We've got varieties that have been being crossed and worked on for years and years and years. And we don't get a hundredfold return. It's, in other words, it's quite obvious that this, this return did not come about because he had good seed or good fertilizer or good field. It's during a famine. It's quite obvious. God has decided, I'm going to take this trial and I'm going to show my glory to these pagans. 
I'm going to show who I am to people who don't know me. He sows in the land and he gets a hundredfold return. On the heels of one of his greatest failures ever. What? Isaac's just proven how fallible and frail he is. How faithless he can be at times. And yet God is here holding him. Blessing him. Upholding him. Taking care of him. Why? Because God's making a point to Abraham and to Isaac. You are not under my protection because you're faithful. You're not. You're under my care because I'm faithful. Even when you fail him, God is still faithful. He cannot deny himself. He can't deny who he is. He's a faithful God. I'm not saying it's okay, therefore, to just live without law. If you think that, you probably need to examine whether you're even born again or not. But if you are born again, here's the encouraging word to you. God is faithful to you not because you've done everything right. He's not faithful to you because of you. He's faithful to you in spite of you. And that's what he's showing Isaac. And that's what he's showing Abraham. And that's what I'm hoping you'll get today. Let me close with this. If you're a believer today, these same two things that God was pointing out to Isaac and Abraham, he's going to point out to you when you're in trials as well. What are those two things that you're going to be pointed toward as you're weathering the storms of life? Number one, your weakness, your fallibility, your, frail, your frailty, your faithful or faithlessness at times, your, your humanity. You will see clearly just how human you really are when you're in trial. You'll see clearly just how much a son of Adam you really are in the trials. I hope as you go through trial after trial, like Abraham and Isaac, it will be less and less. But I promise you'll still see it. Number two, what's the other thing you'll see? Ooh, this is going to break me down. His faithfulness. You will see clearly just how holy, how good, and how faithful God really is. You'll see how clearly and how serious He is at keeping His word, even when you fail. Because at some point, even with your best efforts, you will fail. And yet God will never fail you. He is the unfailing, unchanging God. His goodness to you is in spite of you. Not because of you. Listen to what 2 Timothy 2, 11-13 says. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Here it is. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. He is faithful. Period. Even when we blow it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being the God who never fails. Thank you for being the God who looks after your people in the sunny times and in the storms. Thank you for being the God who keeps his word and upholds his people even when we fail. Thank you for being holy and good and righteous and trustworthy and faithful. Mold us into your image that we might be more faithful. 
that we might reflect Christ more in the middle of a world that does not know you. Open doors that we might give the gospel to dying souls that you might save some. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Go ahead.